Amen. Thanks, Tony. Uh, so I don't think I introduced myself earlier. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. <clears throat> uh, scripture passage for this morning is uh, from 1 Samuel, again, as we're in a series uh, on First and Second Samuel. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, if you are watching from home, it should be on your uh, TV screen. You can uh, use the Pew Bible. I think the page numbers are there or the Bible that you brought from home. So I think that's four or five different ways uh, that we want you to access or take advantage of accessing the text, uh, but have it in front of you uh, as I read here, okay? So this is God's word from 1 Samuel 12 and then reading uh, the first 15 verses of 1 Samuel 13. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Obviously, the writer's not telling us that Saul became king when he was one years old, okay? So this is one year after uh, the previous chapter's um, events. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, excuse me, and all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Uh, would you say with me in light of God's word, uh, the grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, if you flip over in your worship folder, you'll see the, the outline. We're in this series on First and Second Samuel, and we're really highlighting or, or uh, emphasizing the reality of God's presence with his people. And last week we saw the people rejected God as their king. And now that their wish has been granted, we'll see how little impact the presence of God has for them and their king. In fact, over the next number of weeks, over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three stories that illustrate how flawed the character of Saul really is. And the goal isn't that you'd read them and say, wow, glad I'm not like that. Uh, The goal is that you would read them and go, yeah, that's me. I do that. I behave that way. The narrator's trying to get us to look at Saul and see ourselves, to learn from him, and hopefully feel this longing. You can feel this longing creeping in for a better king. That's the Old Testament, by the way. Uh, One of my Old Testament professors, he wasn't biased by any stretch, of course, but he said, you know, the real story is the Old Testament. The footnotes are the New Testament. I, I thought more people would chuckle at that, but... I am 0 for 2 this morning, so maybe, maybe I'll get a chuckle out of somebody here before too long. But anyway, he's trying to get us to long for something better. Samuel gives us a hint of that, which we'll get to. So the outline uh, to help guide us through the story is printed for you in the worship folder. And what we're going to do is take a look at three aspects of the story. Saul and his problem, Saul's impatience in solving his problem, And Saul's failure that creates a longing for something or someone better, okay? And uh, Samuel tells us that at the last part of the passage. So first, Saul and his problem. Israel's quickly discovering who they asked for is what they got. Saul becomes king officially at 30 years of age. He's a charismatic figure. He's bold, he's impulsive, he's decisive, he's good-looking, and these are traits that it stands to reason you would want in a king, okay? Now, remember, though, the people demand a king like all the other nations, and the reader quickly discovers that they're getting their wish. Do you know what the word Saul, the name Saul, means? Asked for in Hebrew. So they're getting what they asked for. And it proves true very quickly. So he's at the helm for two years. And in verse 2, he decides the army's too big. He takes 2,000. And his son, Jonathan, takes 1,000. This is the first time you're introduced to the character Jonathan in the Bible. And the the author just says his name kind of out of nowhere. But just an FYI, Jonathan is Saul's son. Also, for those of you wondering, how do you spell Jonathan's name? It's right here, okay? So if you ask me that one time, I may say, you know, like the one in the Bible, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. Blame my parents for that. Uh, Anyway, he decides, first thing, the army's too big. And the next two verses, verses three and four, are the first warning lights on the dashboard, because here's what happens. 
and you see it there. Jonathan, not Saul, initiates the battle with the Philistines. The Philistines at this point in history are at the peak of their power. I mean, they are at the height of their height. And it is Jonathan who goes out and initiates a battle with them of his own accord with his troops. But what happens? Well, Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan defeated them in verse 3. And then in verse 4, what does the author say? All Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That's a lie. Now, some will say that in the ancient world, the propaganda would be powerful for the enemy to hear and know that since they know Saul is king, it was said Saul was the person who defeated them. But the fact that Saul takes the credit, you're uh, just cracking the door open. This is, this is not the guy. Because not only being bold and impulsive and charismatic, he's insecure, he's petty, he's immature, and sometimes, oftentimes, cowardly. The people say to Samuel, give us a king, we read this last week, who will go out before us and fight our battles. Is this king going out before them and fighting their battles? Not so far. The Philistines are described as sand on the seashore in multitude in verse 5. They muster and there's, there's a lot of people. That's what that means. And when the men of Israel saw the mighty army of the Philistines, they said to one another, Israel, do not fear. We have a king. We have a king who will lead us into battle with the ark in front of us, and we will bask in the presence and power of Yahweh to defeat our enemies and to rescue us from our distresses. The Lord fights for us. He'll squash the Philistines like annoying mosquitoes. Oh, wait, that's not what they say, is it? That's not what happens. Look at verse 6. That was what I wanted to read in verse 6. But that ain't what you read in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the people were hard-pressed, the, the people hid themselves. Where, where's the king? Where, where is Saul? Where is God? Can you feel the despair in this scene, in this story? I mean, it's pretty hopeless. And we'll get to Saul in just a minute, but it goes... I mean, you got to come into this and, and ask, and I, I felt this even just reading this this week and preparing, where, as you come in this morning, are you feeling like the Israelites, hard-pressed? Where, as you look around, where do you see or feel a sense of, man, I'm in trouble? And maybe it's a realization that your marriage isn't what you thought it was. Maybe it's a health diagnosis that's really scary. Maybe it's the unknown of your job future. It reminded me, uh, thinking about this, of a time when I felt especially hard-pressed. I, I started college, and I was going along just fine uh, until I took organic chemistry. Stupid idea in the first place. But the first class, the first thing, actually, that I had ever really failed at in my entire life, and actually, thankfully, this is why Florida State is such an amazing school and place with a great football team. Um, sorry, I digress. The school let me withdraw so there actually was no evidence that I had ever failed, Whew, right? Now, what was God doing? Well, he provided me a great friend and a roommate who suggested that I maybe change my major, which I did. So graduated, changed degrees, went into a master's program at a seminary. I'd married Jamie by this point. 
And we were both excited about a life in international missions. We both felt called to that. So we raised money. We packed up, got trained. We passed inspection. We moved abroad. And under a year later, we were back here. Well, actually, about 20 minutes that way in Lake Wales. It hadn't worked out. And this time, though, there was no withdrawing. This failure was etched in stone on the transcript of my life. And so here I am, no job, two small children, no home, no direction. Where do you turn? Where do you go? Certainly feeling hard-pressed. The Israelites, they hide. And that's eerily similar to the first pages of the Bible. There you find that in the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman hide themselves because their shame and their fear have them hard-pressed. And if we're honest with ourselves, we often find ourselves turning inward. Our talent, or to things like our talent, our knowledge, uh, the the who can I call list, the mind-numbing endless scrolling of social media, money, sex, substances. Why is that our tendency? I think rather than facing the thing that is troubling us, we'd prefer to ignore it or stuff it under things that are more pleasant or more fun or more light. The strategy is often to relieve the trouble or pressure immediately because, well, who wants to live in that? Who wants to live there, right? So where did I turn? Well, I hid in the back of the church we attended. I threw away my uh, seminary degree certificate. I had a general apathy about the future of my life. And that was almost 20 years ago. Realized that this week. That was almost 20 years ago. And I'm a slow learner. (laughs) But I know God more deeply now because I went through that trouble, through that hard press, than if I'd breezed my way through those years with relative ease. And the the truth is, Christianity says that it's only through the furnace of affliction, through being hard pressed, that we come to experience God as a living reality. It's part of what makes this passage such an indictment because the people and the king are going through a hard-pressed time. They are in trouble. There's sand of the seashore Philistines, and they go hide. They don't go after, ask for, look for, pursue the presence of God, and their king surely isn't leading them to that either. But it's only in the furnace of affliction where we encounter God, we encounter his presence with us, Christianity says that because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, if your heart's trust is in him, you are loved by God himself, and you can't lose it. You can't lose it if you have a bad day, a bad week, a bad reaction, a bad diagnosis. You can lose all the most valuable things in your life, but you'll never lose the love of God. In fact, his love is the only thing that you can carry into death all the way through it and into his arms on the other side of it. Now, you see here the people's response, but you also see Saul's response. Saul turns to his position as king, facing this affliction of imminent war, a cowering nation. He's, he's not inquiring of the Lord. He's not doing any of the things that we would expect uh, a king to do. And sometimes I wish that I was reading the Bible for the first time because What would happen if you start on the first page and you read all the way through for the first time, you get to this point and you start to feel like, okay, they've talked about a king and they've talked about a leader and a need for something better and then they reject God and that doesn't look like it's going well. Well, maybe Saul. 
And if you're reading this for the first time, the, the goal is as you turn each page, you are coming directly in contact with the failure, the failure, the failure. And you keep turning the pages for more failure and you're longing for something different. Are they ever going to get there? And of course, we know the end of the story. That is, a king does come, a far better king. But I digre- I, I, I'm jumping ahead. I don't want to jump ahead. I want you to feel this tension, right? Let's not be too hard on Saul, because after all, he did wait seven days, which is what Saul t- or Samuel told him to do back in chapter 10. Uh, he says, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice uh, peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. This is chapter 10, verse 8. Until I come to you and show you what you shall do. A week is a long time to wait for something. I mean, it is. Let's not forget, there's a million Philistines amassing nearby for battle. And nevertheless, Saul says, okay, I've waited I got to take matters into my own hands. He makes the burnt offering, which was reserved for priests alone. And as soon as he is finishing it up, Samuel arrives. And this part is uh, easy to miss. Uh, it's, it's a little more clear in uh, the Hebrew. But uh, if you look down there at verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Rather than apologize to Samuel, confess his impulsive behavior, Saul goes out to greet him, which means, the word in Hebrew means he went out to bless him. So basically, my friend, nice to see you. How are you doing? There's nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Everything's hunky-dory. I've made the offering. We're going to be fine. But for Saul... As one commentator put it, sacrificial ritual was essential, but prophetic direction dispensable. This was an emergency, and he was the king after all. And so against his better judgment, he says in verse 12, I, you, you, you didn't come, so I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. See, Saul was seeking the favor of the Lord by sacrifice rather than obeying his voice. And sometimes, quote-unquote, common sense might make more sense than waiting on the Lord. For Saul, it just made sense to go ahead, do the offerings, take care of the problem, strategize. How do you handle waiting? For me, it, w- it was a seven, but it was seven years. It was a good seven years of waiting from the time I had failed my first full-time ministry assignment until I received another one. And in the meantime, I did a lot of sawing not sawing, but sawing. I was far more busy. I was far more just doing stuff. I don't even remember what I was doing. Jamie could probably tell you. But it wasn't very much productive. Far more busy than listening and waiting on the Lord. Now, there's two pictures that I, I hope will help explain this. They're from a book, A Praying Life, Uh, which we have in the foyer, and many of you have read, uh, highly recommend it. This is a visual representation of where Saul was, and it might be where you are right now. It's this sense of, I, my hope, I hope things are going to work out. I hope that this hard-pressedness is going to get relieved. But as I look at reality, 
the gap between those two things, man, it feels like a desert. And Paul Miller says, we will do anything not to live in the desert. Amen? Yes, amen. We will do anything to not live in the desert. Now, forget that wonder part because there ain't no wonder in Saul, okay? That's for a later time. Uh, that's where you want to end up. Um, but that's not where we end up here. Now, the, kind of the next step is because you don't want to live in the uh, desert, this is how he handles the problem. When we refuse to wait, we often move into a determination to solve the problem. And so this is where you've got this hope, you've got this area of hard-pressed, and you, can, you know how you want to see relief, and so you force reality. Paul Miller says, a determination often sets in to fix whatever's causing the trouble. You've faced obstacles before and overcome them. This is no different. By the sheer force of your will. So the king is using the sheer force of his will rather than waiting on the will of Yahweh himself. So much of the army was hidden because they were so afraid. Weapons were unobtainable. Armed bandits were raiding all over Israel. You can read about this in the rest of the chapter. Uh, the Philistines had taken all the blacksmiths out of Israel so no one could make weapons for themselves. And what remained of the army was pretty demoralized. So everywhere Saul looks, if you go back to the previous one, Joe, real quick, everywhere Saul looks, he sees a, a desert as far as he can see. And he refuses to wait for Samuel. Now, we may not know the future. We may not have all the answers. We might be stuck in a hopeless, hard-pressed situation. But when we're in the place of waiting... And, and, I, and this, is, this, is, this is a statement of faith. I mean, this is me even saying this, is me trying to will myself to faith in saying it. So I don't want you to hear me say this like, okay? But when we're in the place of waiting in the midst of the desert, in the chaos of an uncertain future, God gifts us with his presence. The psalmist says, walking through the valley of the shadow of death's uh, excuse me, through the valley of death's shadow hanging over us, I'm scared to death. Is that what he says? He says, no, I won't fear because you're with me. We're the presence of God. And it's why the ark was such an integral part of Israel's battle plan. When they looked around and they saw the opposing army, numerous as the sand on the seashore, God was with them. There's no mention of the presence of God in this story. No one's asking for it. No one's rejoicing over it. No one's waiting on it. Saul's impatience comes from a determination to confront the reality of life on his own terms. And as we'll see, the results are tragic. Saul made excuses and blame shifted instead of owning his sin. Look at verse 11. Uh, Samuel says, what have you done? Now, let me read this to you, and you tell me what this sounds like. Well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What do you hear there? Excuses, 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 Saul. And that's what he's doing. Because he's looking at his circumstances, and his circumstances are interpreting his theology. His theology, what he knows to be true about God, what Samuel has taught him, what the, pro, or what the uh, uh, 
Old Covenant stories of the Exodus and the crossing of the Jordan would have taught him, he's ignoring, or he's forgetting, or he's just choosing straight unbelief. Saul had forgotten that the Lord's steadfastness was his only resting place, especially in the midst of a trial like the army losing heart and the Philistines breathing down their necks. And Samuel says, you have done foolishly. Now in the Bible, to be a fool is to live not according to reality. And in Psalm 14, verse 1, the psalmist says, a fool is someone who lives as if God doesn't matter or doesn't pay attention or doesn't even exist in some way. The mentality of this person is, if it's going to be, this is your time. There you go. I thought more people would recognize that statement. If you don't, that's good. Maybe you're not tempted to live there. If it's going to be, it's up to me. That's the mentality. Saul doesn't pray. Saul doesn't lament. He doesn't look up. He's only looking around. And so his impatience leads him to act because he doesn't trust that God would act, that God would keep his word. And you want to grab Saul by the scruff of the neck and read him from Isaiah 64, verse 4, where Isaiah says, our God is a God who acts for those who wait for him. Relax, Saul. Easy for us to say. It wasn't the, toward the end of day seven, and he's facing an army like the sea, sand on the seashore. The fatigue he must have felt by the morning or by the midday or whenever it was that he finally said, bring me the offering. That fatigue on day seven would necessitate a review of these words that we read earlier. And you may be there right now. So let me read them to you. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. I hope... That gives you hope. Saul needed to be reminded of that. You've got too much similarity between Saul and the first Adam, which is uh, seeking to kind of go his own way and then leading the people toward hiding from a place of shame. The author is making a case for kingship, but only a certain kind of king. See, we need a king who will not only rescue us from our enemies, but from ourselves. We need a king who can take on sin and liberate us from our slavery to empty things, as Samuel calls them. We need a king who obeys all that God commands in all circumstances, even when under the pressure of waiting in the furnace of affliction, like the desert. And Samuel promises one. Read there, continue to go, uh, continue to read on. Samuel said to Saul, verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. That was not a very long uh, reign. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Now, 
If you look back at the first part of our passage, the verses from uh, chapter 12, this is toward the end of Samuel's farewell address to the nation of Israel, including Saul. And really what he's doing here is he is warning them about what is to come and to say, listen, because he, he recounts everything and then he says, you know, hey, you guys have insulted us, me and Yahweh, you've rejected him. And in fact, he says, listen, stand here and see how amazing God is. He says, isn't there a harvest? Don't we need some rain? He calls on God, thunder and rain strikes. The people say, pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die. So there's some, feels like repentance going on here. And then in verse 20 from our passage, uh, Samuel said, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil. <laughs> That's not what you expect after, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Nope. Do not be afraid. You're evil. And that's the antidote to impatience, unbelief, fear, owning our sin, to say, I have done evil. I am evil. Samuel says, follow the Lord with all your heart. If a part of your heart is given over to something other than God, something you think will profit you, like money or a good reputation or a good resume, or something you think will rescue you, like your talents or your charm, it will always turn out empty, Samuel says. He says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, verse 21, uh, after empty things that can't profit or deliver. They're empty. Don't turn aside after the empty things. You will never really understand your heart when things are going well, because it's only when things go badly that you can see it truly. That's when suffering comes, only when suffering comes, when you are troubled or hard-pressed, it's there that you realize who is the true God and who are the false gods of my life? Who are the empty things? What are the empty things? And is my heart sold to following God alone? Our assurance of pardon from Psalm 130 is, uh, gosh, one of my favorite psalms. Uh, I, the, the way that everybody was singing it, I, I hope it, uh, the I Will Wait For You song, I hope it is for you too. But if you look there at the end of the psalm, okay, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He's worth hoping in. He's worth waiting on because of his steadfast love. Because with God, there's plenty of redemption to go around. He doesn't run out of it. There's plentiful redemption. How intense is your waiting? He says, my soul waits in his word, I hope. My soul waits more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning? What does that mean? Well, have you ever woken up at 3.22 and not been able to sleep? And you know your alarm is going off at 5. And you sit there, and it's 324, and then it's 330, and then it's, and you are waiting, just please, God, get it to five. Because if I got up and got coffee right now, oh my goodness, it would ruin my day. Just please let it get to five. Or please let, please let the sun come up. Sometimes that's how it is when you're uh, camping. For those of you that have camped out in a tent in the rain or with the moon shining like this light in my face right now, and you wake up 
and you're like, oh, the sunrise is not for two and a half more hours. Oh, please, God, get the sun up, get the sun up, get the sun up. More than watchmen are waiting for the morning. We wait for the Lord. Where are you waiting for him? Listen to what Samuel says as I finish us here about God's presence. Okay? And I found myself going back to these words again and again and again. So look at verse 22. This is near the top of your worship folder page. He says, don't turn aside after empty things. Don't go after empty things. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In the afflictions of life, in the hard-pressed places, he will not abandon you. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus has already been abandoned. Consider what great things he has done for you. The refrain of the Old Testament, go back to the reading of the law, Moses says it in Deuteronomy chapter 8, The refrain of the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the conquest of the land. It's God's saving work over and over and over. They repeat it over and over. If you read in through the the prophets toward the, the end of the Old Testament, they repeat it over and over again. Consider it, consider it, they keep saying, not only in the past, but yesterday. What great things yesterday? What today has he done? What last week? What last month? What last year? Consider what great things he has done for you. Have you experienced that? Have you tasted that? This story reiterates to us that no king will save us. No king will prevent us from being swept away. Israel wanted a king to fight their battles, but no one will be able to defend them from God's judgment except the prince. Of course, the writer's preparing us for David who we'll meet in a few chapters. But the ultimate fulfillment of Samuel's words doesn't come from Saul's line. You get that? Not from Saul's son. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great Saul's greater son. Nope, that's not what the song says. Great David's greater son, right? The prince will come from David's line. And Samuel says that the true king will be after God's heart. He'll embody the presence of God. Jesus got life without God on the cross so we could have life with God. He experienced the Father's absence so we could experience his presence. Because Jesus was forsaken, we don't ever have to experience that. See, Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, would himself be swept away because it was the only way to save his people. The stories of Saul, indeed the whole Old Testament, I love the Old Testament. Please love the Old Testament with me. I know I, I said read First Samuel every week. Yeah, read it. I'm, I'm going to stand by that. Read community Bible reading and then read Samuel too, right? Can't get enough of the scriptures. But the, the entire Old Testament, the entire story from page one all the way through is, to meant, uh, is meant to increase our longing for the king that our hearts desire and need. And this is the span of faith. Okay, you ready for this? This is the span of faith. To live between the time of the giving of the promise, this is where Israel is right now in our story, to live between the time of the giving of the promise and the completion of the promise when the promise looks utterly impossible. When the the men 
of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. And verse 7, some crossed the fords of the Jordan. They went out of the promised land. They were so scared they left. Because their king was an impatient, non-present coward. But not our king. Now, because of the life and work of Jesus Christ, we have permanent access by the Holy Spirit to the presence of God. He will not forsake you. He will not forsake you. Consider, recount all the great things he's done. There are a lot. If each of us stood up for 10 seconds in this room, and I mean, how long would that take? But how much faith How much encouragement would you be filled of at the end of that? All the great things he's done, even in this room. His steadfast love endures forever. His redemption quota is never exhausted. Where you are fatigued or faint or hard-pressed, he's the everlasting God. Where you are waiting, he promises to renew your strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate embodiment of everything that Saul promised the people that would come into fulfillment in part in King David, but of course be lacking there too. And we thank you for Saul. We thank you for the ways in which we see here in this passage and we will see in future passages the ways in which he disregarded your presence and lived as if you were not integral, important, crucial to his life. He shunned your work in his life. And forgive us, we do the same thing. We quench the Spirit's work often. So forgive us and help us by faith to run to the Lord Jesus, the great Prince of Heaven, who would make himself nothing, who would offer himself up and receive the just sentence and punishment of our sin so that we might have life. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you, we love you, and thank you, and praise your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Amen. If you're new to the Bible, uh, let me encourage you to uh, look on Amazon for the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, And the refrain in that Bible uh, that was written by Sally Lloyd-Jones is that every story whispers his name. So it does give you some encouragement and hope, even as you're reading the Old Testament, even as you're going through the Old Testament, and there's so many, what in the world does that mean? What did they do that for, right? Um, Look for him. He's the hero of every story, uh, especially uh, this one. And all the other heroes are echoes of him. So may that give you some hope and encouragement. May this benediction, this final word as you go, uh, grab hold of it. And may it uh, uh, land in the, in the bottom of your soul uh, to know that as you go, he goes with you this week. Okay? So receive this word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.